We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 109 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 16th of August, 2017. With me, of course, the Velvet Glove. Scott, how are you? Really well, thanks, Trevor. How's yourself? I'm going well. Uh, we're live. I'm pleased to hear that. We're live broadcasting, dear listener. For those of you who are um, listening to this on a podcast later on, good on you. But there's also a couple of people um, apparently in the chat room watching us, or maybe one now. But anyway, um, uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And Scott, last time, last week, we got through about half of the agenda and ran out of time and said, oh, we'll give it a go. We'll just do that again. We'll get to those next week. And in the last seven days... Lo and behold. Um, sort of contemporaneous <laughs> stuff that's cropped up. We'll deal with that first. And if we get if we get time to address the leftovers from last week, I'll be surprised. <laughs> they're, they're, they're relentless. The religious, the religious have not let us down, no, have they? They just can't help themselves. So... Marriage equality, child abuse, assisted dying. Honestly, if it wasn't a secular sort of angled podcast and it was just pure news, you, you'd still be talking religion all the time. So even without a special interest in it, they, they are what's going on at the moment. So, so anyway, Scott, we'll start. And um, as I sort of, I wouldn't say predicted, but sort of just mentioned last week was that religious groups will start talking about um, the problem with marriage equality laws is protection of religious freedom and people who are making cakes or photographing weddings being forced to participate in, um, in ceremonies that are against their religion and that there wouldn't be enough protection of their quote-unquote religious freedom. And that was the sort of stuff that was going to come up. And... and Scott, I would have thought in the past that that was an argument that was a favourite of someone like Lyle Shelton uh, from the ACL. But the Catholics are sort of picking up this argument and we've got article from the Catholic News, Sydney Archbishop Anthony Fisher. Uh, he was reported uh, as uh, laying down battle lines for the no case by linking the redefinition of marriage to broader community concerns about issues such as the contentious Safe Schools Program. <laughs> this is drawing a long bow, Scott, you know, when you can say one of your problems with marriage equality is that it's <laughs> going to allow the introduction of the Safe Schools Program. OK. Um, as I was saying to my better half this morning, I said one of the things that's really annoying about this is that you have got a situation that um, all the sad, tired, outmoded ideas that were, have been run across the planet are now being run here again. And that is really annoying, really frustrating, and it is incredibly churlish that we have to put up with this. However, having said that, <clears throat> I'll deal with him first. 
the Safe Schools program has nothing to do with marriage equality at all. It was a program that was designed to end bullying and that sort of stuff of same-sex attracted children and that type of thing. That's where it's over. That's where it ends. But, you know, because it's been controversial, they break, they drag it up and they say that, you know, you're going to have the situation that kids are going to be instructed how to have sex homosexually, which is nonsense. It's not going to happen. The, the, you know, the two, it's absolute The garbage. two just don't go together. I'll, I'll read a bit more. No, they don't. I'll, be, I'll read a bit more of his statement. So in a statement to the Australian, Archbishop Fisher said, the exercise of free religion would be curtailed and religious protection uh, and the religious protections canvassed so far applied only to ministers of religion and civil celebrants, a group representing only a tiny proportion of believers. So, dear listener, in legislation that has been proposed from what we've seen, you know, all along with this stuff, is um, basically if we introduce um, same-sex marriage then clergymen or clergywomen will not mm-hmm. be compelled to perform a marriage ceremony if it's against their religion and marriage celebrants will not be required to perform a marriage ceremony if it's against their religion. So, in you know, in the situation where marriage equality is allowed, they've identified the people who might be participating in that, who might have a religious problem, and wrongly in my view given them an out and said you don't have to so it's it's already way too generous and shouldn't be allowed for starters but okay bring in a law allowing marriage equality and uh a certain type of marriage ceremony and allow some exemptions so that's not good enough for these groups because now they want it extended to well i'll keep reading the the cake baker Mm. yeah what protections so again quoting The Sydney Archbishop, uh, Catholic Archbishop, Anthony Fisher. What protections will be offered to people who work for church-run institutions such as schools, hospitals and universities? He said, will teachers be free to teach church teaching on marriage or will they be forced to teach a more politically correct curriculum? What a red herring piece of nonsense. Just because the Marriage Act has changed to allow same-sex marriage how's that in any way going to affect what teachers are teaching in a church or what is going on in a university it is just absurd red herring um again he goes on will employers of such church agencies be free to choose staff in sympathy with their church teachings Will Catholic welfare agencies be required to provide marriage preparation or marriage counselling for same-sex couples on pain of being dragged before anti-discrimination tribunals? Finally, in other parts of the world that have, been, that have legalised same-sex marriage, those who believe in traditional marriage have been harassed or coerced into complying with the new view of marriage. It would be extremely naive to think that won't happen here. If that's your best argument, if that's it, what a pathetic piece of nonsense. Yeah, it is. um, The part that worries me is that you're going to have people believing this nonsense. And, you know, even amongst my own family, my 
brother and sister-in-law have both trotted out that uh, nonsense from the ACL. You know, that woman that uh, was raised by lesbian parents and now she's running around the country saying that she's opposed to same-sex marriage. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, they've got a... ACL's got a um, video of her. And In your um, family finds that con- compelling, do they? Apparently so, yes, yeah. <laughs> Christmas must be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Yeah. Oh, anyway, it's me. yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I know, but there are a number of people out there who actually do, who actually do believe that um, the world will come to an end if you get a yes vote. Well, it's that tribalism thing, isn't it? I mean, as the leader of the tribe, if the Catholic Archbishop just can string some words of English together and at the end say, "There's our reasons why we're against it," then that'll do for a significant number of members of the tribe and they won't really care whether it made any sense or not. So that's the unfortunate uh, state we're in. And, um, Scott, I got sent, a friend of the program, Ashling, sent a brochure which is being circulated. What can you do from the Coalition for Marriage? Yeah, the first thing, pray. (laughs) Go ahead. Pray your hardest. Honestly. (laughs) Pray your hardest. <laughs> Item two, update your details with the Australian Electoral Commission. Well, that's good. Can't argue with that. And, Scott, we're in agreement with these people on items one and two, so that's good. Exactly, yes. Uh, got a problem with number three. Support and follow the campaign by signing up at uh, www.coalitionformarriage. I might have a look at that, actually. Mm. Yeah. You could sign up and follow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, just don't support. Preferably. And when they ring up asking me for money, I can tell them to get stuffed. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yep. uh, actually, don't do that. Just say, oh, I'll be with you in a second, and then just leave the phone unattended for half an hour, hopefully tying up resources <laughs> so that they're unable to ring up somebody else. That's the way to go. Yeah, exactly. Donate generously, of course, is number four, and vote no in the plebiscite. Plebiscite. Well, it's not even a plebiscite, but that's... Is that, what date? It's a survey. Yeah, yeah. What date was this? So, well, they're still, probably they're still circulating this. Maybe this was in the lead up when it was going to be a plebiscite. Anyway, in it, they give, they say here, again, this is presumably their best arguments as to why um, uh, they want to, you know, vote against um, uh, marriage equality. So they're saying that as three things would happen from if marriage equality is allowed. Their number one thing, loss of freedom of speech. Number two, loss of freedom of religion. And number three, parents won't be able to oppose the radical sex education program, Safe Schools. <laughs> That's the... Yeah. And they go on to say... You know, if we vote no, this will send a strong message on family, faith and freedom. I, I think a no vote would send a strong message on family, faith and freedom, Scott. It would send a message that you don't care about other people's family, faith or freedom, just your own. Exactly, um, yeah. It, if you vote no, parents can continue to teach their children about their own beliefs and 
we will win the right to civil debate where political correctness has previously intimidated many into silence. You know, you know, this is this political correctness thing was raised by Tony Abbott when he said, you know, if you're uncomfortable with same-sex marriage, vote no. If you're uncomfortable with this, vote no. If you want to stop political correctness, vote no. You know, it's absolute garbage that the two have anything to do with each mm. other. They mm. don't. You know, the two are completely separate. It's, yeah. And again, I mean, the real reasons are because their interpretation of the Bible is that, um, that you know, marriage has to be between a man and a woman and that uh, homosexual activity is, is bad. Yet nowhere is scripture... I mean, for people who are continually promoting st- scripture classes in our ed- state education system, they're really reluctant to refer to scripture when it comes to things like this, which is so disingenuous. Well, they know that it's not going to run. They know that people will not accept the Bible bashing. Exactly. And, you know, you know what? If, if you're going to talk scripture, then they should really be, as Christians, they should be concerned about the New Testament. And in the Christian... In the Christian interpretation of the New Testament, Jesus said absolutely nothing about homosexuality. Right. Yep. <laughs> not a not a word came out of his mouth regarding. Is that right? New so, Testament, nothing know, about homosexuality. Ah, oh, there, there there is from St Paul's letter to Romans and that sort of stuff. Oh, okay. But um, not um, not from Christ himself. Yeah. Christ is attributed with nothing nothing to say about homosexuality yeah. at all. It's so disingenuous, uh, so deceitful. It's just dishonest. At least I'd have some more respect for them if they simply said, this is the word of God, we can't do it because we'll go to hell if we allow this to happen. That would get more respect from me than, than mangling the English language to try and fit this into some sort of uh, free speech um, crusade. That That's... Just so dishonest. Yeah. Mm. Scott, uh, Central Report did some um, polling of people and they, um, the question was posed this way. The Coalition Government has decided to make a second attempt to hold a plebiscite on same-sex marriage. If it does not pass the Senate, they will hold a voluntary postal vote, which does not need legislation. Do you approve or disapprove of this approach to resolve the issue of same-sex marriage? And 39% approve, 47% disapprove, and 14% don't know. So most Australians are not happy with how this has come about. And... Exactly. You know, it's... Yeah, anyway, I won't go there again. No worries. (laughs) Uh, Currently, as of July the 18th, Uh, 61% of Australians were still in favour of marriage equality. 13% don't know, 26% against. And Scott, way back, well, way back, it's only as recently as July the 18th again, they said to people, how do you think a decision on legalising same-sex marriage should be made? First choice, a vote in Parliament where politicians can vote according to their conscience or party policy. Second one, a national vote which is binding on Parliament. Third one, this sort of postal vote that we've got. And fourth, don't know. So of those four options, 
the lowest one at 9% was a non-binding national vote, which is followed by a vote in Parliament where politicians can vote according to their conscience or party policy. So out of three options and a don't know on the 18th of July, only 9% wanted the actual option we're going to be following here. What an appalling result for the government to, to now be in a position of running a camp, running a process that only a month ago received, you know, 9% of people thought out of several options that that was the best. What a disaster. It is a disaster for them. It's absolutely ridiculous that they have followed, you know, that they've gone this way. It's maddening in the extreme that they have ignored all the surveys and that sort of stuff that have been done time and time again. They've been told to sort it out themselves and they haven't. Mm. Hey, we've got people in the chat room. We've got opinionated organism who says yeah. uh, they can't bring religion into the debate because that would violate section 116 of our constitution. Um Oh, I don't know about that opinionated organism. Uh, Section 116 says, The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office. Blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean you can't have religious reasons for what you do. So... I don't think that 106, Section 116 is stopping people like the ACL and the Catholic Church from raising that as their reasons for objecting to marriage equality. But there'll be more on Section 116 later, dear listener. Scott, we've previously mentioned um, David Van Gend. Yes. <laughs> Did we, you, were you there with Deep Throat? Or, or not? Yeah, me and Deep Throat went to see him at his book launch, which was hosted by the ACL uh, at some religious school out in um, the northern suburbs yeah. somewhere. I forget where it was. Article yeah. here. Um, the well, basically, um, he said he's disappointed by the um, lack of mainstream media interest in his book. And he's tried and tried, <laughs> but no one is paying attention to his book. Um, quote... Well, no one's paying attention to his book because it's nonsense. No. We were very disappointed by the lack of any intelligent interest by the major media, Dr Van Gend said. Scott, I, um, I sent him an email inviting him to talk about his um, thoughts on that issue and others and... Yeah. I haven't heard back from him. But David, if you're if you're listening, <laughs> if you're doing a little bit of homework uh, as to the podcast, I as I said in the email, I promise you a fair and respectful hearing where you'll get to say your bit. And you know, I'm not really even going to try and con- oh, of course, I'm not going to convince you otherwise, or even try to convince you. I'll just sort of explore your reasoning and let you have your say because I'm genuinely wanting to get a few of the. Of the other voices on here, Scott, not because we're going to change their opinions, but just to sort of get a better gist of of the arguments. So, so David, if you're out there, please respond to the email. Would love to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, Scott. Uh, we'll see whether or not he actually responds hmm. to you. <laughs> um, Royal Commission, Scott, came out with uh, some recommendations and... 
as any. Yes, and this is before their final yes. report, isn't it? so a bit of an interim. Oh, mm. Well, I think there was in total about 75 recommendations. and Which is a hell of a lot from an interim is, report. Yes. yes. So uh, one of the recommendations, dear listener, was that uh, if a priest is hearing a confession and somebody confesses to child abuse or being abused, then uh, the priest must report this to the authorities, otherwise they will be in contempt. And um, that that's to be made clear in legislation. Oh, Scott, well, dear listener, I'll give you one guess as to whether you thought, you know, whether the Catholic Church was happy about that or not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, given that the uh, arch, that the um, then, no, was he Cardinal? I don't know. Anyway, Cardinal Pell, back when he was the Archbishop of Sydney, and this came up, he said that, uh, and then Tony Abbott was the one who raised it, and he said that, you know, you, you've got to be able to break the seal of the confessional. He said, and I quote, the seal of the confessional is inviolable. The seal of the confessional is inviolable. The seal of the confessional is inviolable. He said it three mm. times, and that was it. So, um, I suspect that the Catholics are going to be sticking to the Cardinal's words mm. on those. So, that was prior to the Royal Commission, Scott? Or at least in the very uh, early That was days? after the Catholics got roasted in the, in the Royal Commission, because they got roasted fairly early, didn't oh, they? It's been a steady roast most long... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Along the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I don't know whether or not the Royal Commission had even started hearing, but anyway, it had it had either just gone underway or was getting underway. Yeah. And Tony Abbott was asked as one of the leading Catholics in the country, what did he think of the confessional? And he said, well, he said, as far as I'm concerned, if a priest hears that someone has vi- has violated a child, he should be reporting that. And so, yeah. So anyway, dear listener, in response to the uh, recommendations from the Royal Commission that just came out in the last day or so, you know, how these priests manage to actually conduct any marriage ceremonies, Scott, is beyond me because they're so busy firing off press releases (laughs) dealing with progressive (laughs) laws that they wouldn't have time. How how they can, you know, conduct a pastoral care of their flock in amongst... Meetings with media managers is beyond me. So, anyway, Melbourne. This, that's the Melbourne Archbishop this time. So, who did we have last time? It was it was uh, it was the Sydney Archbishop who was dealing with um, with the marriage equality. Say so they've they've divided it up here. And we've got the Melbourne Archbishop this time. Dennis Hart said he'd rather go to jail than report child abuse heard in confession. And you know that is absolutely mind-numbingly stupid that he would say something like that. I mean, like, it is just... Uh, it's evil, Scott. It's more than stupid. If you hear of child abuse, regardless of where you hear about it, you report mm. it. It it doesn't matter what laws and rules you've got around it. You've just got to report it's it. Evil. Um, he's, it is evil. It is evil, yeah. Here. Uh, I believe, he's talking about confession, is an absolute sacrosanct communication of a higher order that priests by nature respect. We are admitting a communication with God 
is of a higher order, he said. It is a sacred trust. It's something those who are not Catholics find hard to understand, but we believe it is most uh, most sacred and is very much part of us. Um, at least, Scott, on this occasion, let's give marks for honesty. At least he didn't rely on freedom of speech arguments. Exactly. At least yeah. he just went for the the genuine reason of God. Of course, that's complete nonsense. And to think <laughs> that a loving God would want um, sexual abuse to continue, well, yeah, it's just ludicrous, isn't it? Because you know, the God wants it to start in the first place. I mean, you get into knots when you talk about what God wants. But uh, in any event, you know, quoting. Uh, him there, and he went on to say, uh, much of the abuse that occurred was historical, and awareness of abuse was greater now, and he believed it was unlikely, quote, anything would ever happen, unquote, today. Yeah, I think he's got wishful thinking there. Um, now, I'm not blaming everything on celibacy or anything like that, but when you've got a church rule that says you must be celibate, then you're going to have guys that are going to be walking the other side of the road on that. Mm. And, you know, it is it is mind-numbingly stupid that he would say something like that. So that's the Melbourne Archbishop. He's a fairly senior character in the Catholic Church. At the same time, yeah. we've got Father Frank Brennan, a Jesuit priest and Professor of Law at Australian Catholic University, joined Hart in saying he would not adhere to any legislative changes. Quote, And if there is a law that says I have to disclose it, then yes, I will conscientiously refuse to comply with the law, Brennan told the Australian. I think he's misused the word conscientiously uh, there. I think that should read, I will belligerently... <laughs> refuse to comply with the law. And, and here he goes on, quote, All I can say is that in 32 years, no one has ever come near me and confessed anything like that. And instituting such law, I say, simply reduces rather than increases the prospect that anyone will ever come and confess that to me. This guy's got... He, I think he's a regular contributor on John Menadou's blog, I think. Father Frank Brennan. I'm, um, I'm, 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 I'm going to double check. I think he I is. Don't recall the name. Right yeah. to John Menadou saying, "Really, does this guy deserve a slot on your panel of, of, of people on that blog? Because it's just a well, it, it does, make, it does call him into a question if he's going to say stuff like that. And you know, it's, you know, I mean. Yeah, we'll silence them if we have I mean, to. They're yeah. happy to take government money and society's uh, stuff when it suits them, and then uh, as soon as it's inconvenient for them, say, "Oh, bugger you guys! I'm just going to do my own thing." Just disgusting. exactly. Yeah. So that's two very senior figures. Like, you know, other than well, you've already quoted George Pell. We've we've quoted the Archbishop of Sydney. Sorry, Melbourne. We've quoted Frank Brennan, Jesuit priest and professor of law. Like these are these are not just parish, you know. No, this, this these is just, aren't just 
average Father parish O'Malley priest. Father O'Malley out no. the back of Whoop Whoop in these, you know, five-person yeah. parish. These are really senior figures. Mm. Um, fortunately, we've got one here. Uh, the CEO of the Australian Catholics Church's Truth, Justice and Healing Council, Francis Sullivan, he said that should Australia change the law, priests would be expected to obey the law like everyone else or suffer the consequences. So there's one who's uh, said that. Scott, uh, ultimately... Well, probably, that's that's one out of one, how yeah. many, you know. And I guess the ultimate senior figure is the Pope, and that's the one that's going to count. Exactly, and I don't yeah. think he's going to come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to just notice that Australia passed some new legislation and, uh, yep, fair enough, uh, mm. tell everybody what goes on. I don't think he's going to be saying that. Mm. We've mentioned them a few times before, that um, from the Australian Catholic Church, the Truth, Justice and Healing Council, Scott. Uh, yeah, yeah, we have. Uh, did, did we create uh, the Lies, Injustice and Injuring Council? Or, you know, um, I don't think we did, but I thought we might have created something with a secular leaning yeah. to it anyway, saying that, um, yeah. 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 Truth, Justice and Healing Council. Um, <laughs> let me just see. And Brisbane's Catholic Archbishop, Mark Coleridge, said... Uh, the relationship between priest and penitent in the sacrament of Pence is unlike any other relationship because the penitent speaks not to the priest but to God, with the priest only a mediator. <laughs> that needs to be kept in mind when making legal decisions about the seal of the confessional. So he's having a little bit each way. He doesn't say what he's going to do on that one. The sooner we stop helping out these, this religion, the better. Well, exactly. You've got to... You've got to... Um, you've got to cut them off completely, don't you? Mm. You've got to make them pay tax. You've got to, you've got to you know, make them obey the laws, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Scott, we previously mentioned on this podcast many episodes ago that situation, I think it might have been one of the Ballarat um, instances, but where... There was a priest who was um, committing child abuse and he thought that one of the other priests was onto him and he was fearful that this other priest might report him to the authorities. So, what... That's right, he went and confessed to him. Exactly. What do you do, dear listener, in that situation? Well, go and confess to that priest. Confess. And then he can't go to the police. And then that priest goes and dobs you into the cops. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, had the Catholic Church have actually moved against that priest and said, you know, you can't be a priest anymore because you broke the seal of confessional, can you imagine what the backlash would be? The, the, the backlash from the community would be such that they would not be able to carry on any longer. Mm. Um, oh, one other thing that's come up, one of the other recommendations, Scott... Mm. Um, so normally, um, uh, say in a criminal trial, if uh, might be maybe it's a rape trial, something like that. Um, so a woman A has is alleging that she's been raped, and the police might have you know several women who claim to have been raped by the same person. 
in in different circumstances, you know, different weeks, months, even years, um, as a matter of principle, you could not hear all of those cases together in the one courtroom at the one time because it would be thought that that would be detrimental to a fair trial to the accused because the jury would be hearing, oh, well, here's woman A saying that they were raped in these circumstances and here's woman B saying that they were raped in these circumstances and, and here's woman C saying they were raped in these circumstances. In the same way, Scott, that if, um, if he was already a convicted rapist, you could not bring that information up in the court case while trying to... So the conviction of raping women, you know, A, B and C... Um, could not be used in the trial of the rape of woman D. Uh, it would only come up in sentencing later on. So the idea is that um, juries, it was thought, would be unduly influenced by hearing the other stories. So, dear listener, one of the recommendations of the Royal Commission is uh, the Commission has called for greater use of evidence by multiple victims in relation to a single perpetrator arguing the exclusion of this evidence in the past has led to unwarranted acquittals. So if you had half a dozen kids really? all saying that they were abused by Father O'Malley in the broom closet and their stories are very similar, then they'll be able to hear them at the same time and that would... It makes sense, actually, that you're more likely to get the truth, I think. If I was on a jury... Uh, I would take that into account and I'd go, well, they're all telling the same sort of story uh, from different events. This is showing a pattern. I think it's a legitimate thing. So that's a, a big variation from the normal procedure in criminal law, Scott, and that was one of the um, recommendations to come out. Wow, that's a very big um, move, isn't it? And it's... Um it makes me wonder if they if they do this for child abuse, whether or not they'll be able to, you know, go back to your original your original story about race, yes. whether or not they'll be able to bring them all together yeah. too. Yeah. So um, I don't think I highlighted it, but there was something here. I think studies have been done in other jurisdictions, perhaps, to indicate that they thought that the trial results were still fair where this was allowed. So that might be something that should happen in other... I mean, if you're, saying this, if you're saying this is fair enough in a child abuse case, then why not in rape and murder cases? Um, yeah. yeah. It really does... Um, <clears throat> it could throw the whole criminal justice, commission, the whole criminal justice um, system into disarray, couldn't it? It mm. really could make some changes mm. there. Tricky one, that one. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that, but it is... Um, I mean, it's all very well and good to say that you should change it for child abuse and that sort of stuff, and then no further. But then you've got... Well, child abuse is not that far away from rape, and then it's not that far away from murder. <laughs> it's not that far away from burglary or anything like that. Yeah, so, now you're yeah. thinking, Scott. I mean, this is how ethical rules should be applied. When you're going to say, in a certain situation, this is a good idea for these reasons, then you have to be able to say, OK, well, why wouldn't that also apply in an equivalent situation? And, yeah, I think, I think if you're saying that it's good enough in a child abuse case, it, prob it 
probably should be good enough in other cases. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you as an accused don't like that and you think that that is bad for you in terms of a fair trial, then don't put yourself in a position where three or four people are telling the same story about you doing a very similar thing to each of them. Uh, it's it's probably more than bad luck that got you in that position, I'd say. Well, I think that's true. I mean, like you can't just you, you can't just blame bad luck for that. I mean, you got yourself mm. in that position. So anyway, I think I'm in favour of that law for the child abuse situation and for criminal law generally. There you go. Um, mm. And the other one in that Scott was when it comes to sentencing people, um, they often then you know say, okay, he did this and. It's terrible, but um, uh, otherwise this person had impeccable character and, in fact, did lots of great work for the community and, therefore, instead of getting 20 years jail that a normal person would get because of their fine, uh, good character and public service record, you know, they should only get half that amount. So that's the sort of things that get said in sentencing. And another recommendation from the Commission was... The removal of good character as a mitigating factor in sentencing where where that good character facilitated the offending. So... Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, you've got this—you've got a ready-made thing about it. Yeah, he's of good character because he's a Catholic priest. He, he looks after the children, and all that yes. sort of stuff. Yeah, so he could get his yeah, hands on he's them. A really good guy. He conducted, you know, Sunday school classes every Sunday for all these kids. Yeah, well, that's how he got all these kids alone and managed to do what he did. And yes, exactly. So, so yes, if the circumstances of so-called good character um, facilitated the offending, then that good character won't be taken into account. I like that. Hmm. That is a very good hmm. move, yeah. yeah. Scott, um, Brian Morris was interviewed, oh, I think somewhere around about episode 95, and he, because uh, at the time I had uh, just read Democracy for Realists and, you know, it was my awakening as to the importance of lobbying rather than a grassroots yeah. movement the theory being we are completely wasting our time on a grass grassroots... Well, not completely, but largely wasting our time on grassroots movements. And we should be walking the corridors of parliament houses, knocking on politicians' door and having one-on-ones with them, um, just like the ACL does and all these other religious groups, getting our face in front of a politician's face and talking to them. So Brian has been working in the, diligently in the background over the last two, few months and, dear listener, he has created the National Secular Lobby and his idea, as described in the podcast, was that we need um, some people with some celebrity status who are secularly minded, who can argue the case on panels and in the corridors of Parliament and they've announced the first ambassador is a guy called Chris, Chris Shat, I think. S-C-H-A-C-H-T. Scott, would that be pronounced? Yeah. Chris Shat. A former senator and minister for science. He is a political lobbyist and seasoned media performer 
who was a committed supporter of the secular agenda. And his first role will be to encourage other prominent Australians to become uh, national secular lobby ambassadors. So he's the first one. His job is to get two or three others. Um, and... Um, to be the sort of Australian version of Stephen Fry or Bill Maher or Sam Harris or whatever. Is this S-C-H-A-T-T? S-C-H-A-C-H-T. Chris Schatt. Um, okay, got him. Yep. So he started up the National Secular yep. Lobby and it's not a membership-based thing, so they're not looking to steal members from the Atheist Association or the Secular Party or the Rationalist Association. They're not wanting members. They're just looking for... Uh, at this stage, I think, Scott, they're looking for assistance with um, people who could be sort of consultants and help brief these guys on particular topics. So, um, so you know, preparing briefing notes so that these ambassadors are fully briefed about certain situations. So I would imagine so that somebody like the ladies from the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools would be the sort of in-house experts for one of the ambassadors so that they could call on them and they'd provide a, a summary of what the current state of play is. So, so dear listener, um, actually, ladies, if you are listening from Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, please contact Brian and sign up to help if you haven't already. And if you have some special expertise out there, <coughs> excuse me, Brian would love to hear from people who could help on particular topics. So um, I'm thinking, actually, um, the fugitive, Trent, if you're out there, you know a lot about hospitals and the going-ons in religious hospitals um, what they will and won't do and the funding, so you could be helpful. So put your hand up as well. So if you're out there with some particular uh, expertise, that would be good. Um, I've offered the podcast for whenever they want to come on and talk about whatever they want to practice talking on. So maybe um, they'll be in touch. Well, you never know. I mean, they've probably got bigger fish to mm. fry than us, mm. but still and all. Gonna... Scott. Speaking of big fish, yeah, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index. Are you there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm finally, here. Yeah, I've finally okay. convinced you, haven't I? Dear listener, you would recall that Scott was a little yeah, hesitant yes. about what I was <clears throat> calling the Religious Affiliation Register. But now that I've renamed it uh, Secular Index, I think it's going down a bit easier with Scott. <laughs> it is going down a little bit easier. Yes, that's true. So there's a page on. Okay, so we, a page on the website. We've got a ranking, dear, dear listener, and yep. we've got a federal secular index, and we've got a Queensland secular index. And uh, the idea is, well, I'll, I'll read a little bit from it. We take the view that many religious doctrines are harmful to our society and a person who has strong religious beliefs is more likely to oppose progressive reform of our laws. For that reason, it is important to know the nature of religious belief held by our political leaders. This index is an attempt to summarise that information. We have listed our understanding of the particular faith followed by our federal politicians and a rating of their commitment to secular values. We have no problem with politicians who are extremely pious provided they do not seek to impose their religion on other people or seek special privileges or advantages for their religion. 
So, for example, Scott, I'm thinking Daniel Andrews, Premier of Victoria, reputedly a fairly religious character, but has demonstrated very secular policies. So, so while absolutely, re- he's he's taken the he's taken the um, scripture classes mm. out of school. So while yeah. being quite religious on the on our index, we're measuring uh, we're, we're referring to you know religion, but we're measuring uh, secular. Um, tendencies of the politicians and we've basically got a rating from 0 to 10 Uh, 0 would be a person who actively argues against secular values and has demonstrated a shameless desire to use government resources to promote their particular religion and and who would cross the floor and vote against party policy if such policy contravened their religious conviction. And, dear listener, I'm saying somebody like Tony Abbott scores a zero. At the other end of the scale, we've got a ten, which would be a person who may or may not be extremely religious, but who recognises that religion is a private matter which should receive no assistance from government and who actively advocates for the removal of special religious privileges. Can't think of anybody at this stage, but actually... Maybe Daniel Andrews will have to have a closer look at all of his what he's done, but he he, he might be up there. But there you go. And I've got yeah. some gradients in between. If you score a five, it's neutral. It means we can't find evidence of particular secular intentions one way or the other. And dear listener, there uh, is on the website this page. We've listed every federal politician in alphabetical order, and so the first one. Tony Abbott, religion, Catholic, secular index, zero, party liberal, state New South Wales, he's in the Federal Parliament, House of Reps, and a link to his Wikipedia page is there. And what I'm inviting you, dear listener, and I mentioned this on the Facebook page, um, is we need help filling this in because there's a bloody lot of politicians out there and Scott (laughs) and I cannot single-handedly do this. So... It's important because how often in this podcast has there been a sort of a very strange decision or something by a politician and I've gone, oh, let's just scratch the surface here and see what's going on. And sure enough, if you scratch, you will reveal quite often a very religiously motivated politician, which then explains their decision on whether it be marriage equality, assisted dying, abortion law or, you know, whatever. So... It's a pain in the butt to continually Google and try and gather together this information each time. And if there was a central resource that had it there, how good would that be? And I think, dear listener, it will be interesting that we can then, once we've got some data here, we can then look at, okay, well, what's the total secular index for the Liberals versus the Labor Party? How do they compare? And... Over time, how does it change? So if we maintain this for several years and we can say, okay, in this particular parliament, the index was this amount, but then in the next parliament, the index is a different amount, we can say, you know, uh, categorically or statistically, we can say our parliament is becoming more religious or less religious or one of the parties is. Like, I reckon that is really valuable information to sort of statistically monitor what the parliament's doing. 
So that's one reason. And the other one is sometimes, like, I also, I'll talk a bit later about Julie Bishop, but I was, I thought I'll do her as part of my sample ones that I do. And I knew stuff about her that we'd talked about. And if I just did a simple Google search, uh, Julie Bishop MP religion, it wasn't coming up with the stuff that I knew that was out there and I had to go through an old episode and find it and, and put it in. So these things do get lost in Google over time, so it's worth having a central repository of this sort of stuff. So, dear listener, what I'm asking you to do is look at the list. If you think you can help out, and you can, is um, on the comments page of this um, part of the website, just say, uh, Joe Bloggs here, and I'm going to do from um, Bill Bloggs through to Catherine C, or I'm going to do these politicians, and that way you won't be doubling up with somebody else, and you can just come back to us with your information, and we can build it up. But we can't do it alone, and if you, dear listener, are one of the... You know, if 200 people who are downloading and listening to this every week and you've been thinking to yourself, oh, probably should help the guys out at some stage. Oh, keep forgetting to go onto Patreon. Oh, keep forgetting to like the Facebook page. Oh, forgot to share that thing. Oh, but still really enjoying it. Well, dear listener, this is your chance to, to pay back a little of the love. Like, seriously, this... If you've got any sort of secular blood running through your veins and you are in any way pissed off with <clears> what <throat> is happening in this country for all the reasons we've been talking about in the last 108 episodes, now is the time to get off your butt and go on the website and pick some names and spend half an hour or an hour Googling and researching and just going... Um, giving us some information, kind of like... Just go and look at the Julie Bishop example that's on the website, and it's not a lot to ask, and we need your help. So there you go. Scott, you have decided to find... And this is what we'll do, dear listener. Every, I think every week we'll, we will pick a couple of names and then update people with them. So, Scott, what have you got for us this week? Okay, I have got... <laughs> Two members from the opposite ends of the political spectrum and the religious spectrum. I've got Adam Bant from the Greens and the left and a atheist. And I've got Kevin Andrews from the right and a Catholic and a religious mm-hmm. nutter. Okay. Um, the first thing I did was I just a little tip here. I just typed in the name and then typed religion after that. And that's where I came up with these articles. The first one was from the Sydney Morning Herald, and this was when I typed in uh, Kevin Andrews and mm-hmm. religion. And I came up with a, <laughs> I came up with a uh, article that talks about uh, da, 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 where are we? That talks about a group of politicians. There's a dozen. Of, there's two dozen of them or so who get together and. They pray and that sort of stuff every week during the parliamentary sitting okay, weeks. Yep. He's part of the prayer group, yep. He's part of the pa- prayer group. That's important to know, yep. And 
Well, he is part of the pair. There we go, the Cameron Group. The group does not have a name, although it's often referred to as the Cameron Group after Cameron, the Liberal right-wing member for Parramatta who started it. The membership list is a closely guarded secret, but includes several Labor members, including frontbenchers David Cox, Kevin Rudd, the Tasmanian Independents, Brian Harradine, uh, other attendees. Um, this, you know, by the names that I'm throwing out there, you can see that it's fairly dated. And Kevin Andrews, <clears throat> uh, Tony Abbott, Bishop, Kevin Andrews, Nelson, Dana Vale, to name but a few. Okay, that was where he. That was where we first. Um, found out that something was off. Then we go back into Kevin Andrews, the politician. (laughs) And uh, he made a speech to the Endeavour Forum, a conservative Christian group founded to counter the feminist movement which opposes abortion, equal opportunity, affirmative action. Andrews has also given several speeches over the years at the Family Council of Victoria, an organisation opposed to homosexuality, sex education, anti-homophobia policies in public schools, which it claims is pro-homosexual indoctrination of students. His his index is falling. It's plummeting as you speak, Scott. (laughs) He is plummeting. And the thing that really pushed me over the edge, and I knew this, I knew this, and this is one of the reasons I took him, I took his name off the list. Is that in 2000 and whatever it was, he was the man that introduced the private members bill that the coalition government had a conscience vote on, which did away with the voluntary euthanasia laws in the Northern Territory. Yes, and he did that for religious reasons, no doubt. He did that for religious reasons. And I think that, uh, I think that finishes him off. I, I'd put him down there at a one or a oh, two. Oh, Scott, myself. he's a zero. I mean, you introduce... You introduce a private <laughs> members bill for religious reasons to overcome the territory. You know, the, the key thing here, Scott, to get someone from, say, a two or a three to a zero is, is you know, would you cross the floor to vote against party policy if it contravened religious conviction? And he would. And... and Actively, I don't think we can act, actually say act, that. Act, we can't. We can't actually say that he would because he hasn't actually. He hasn't actually been asked that question. But well, uh, actively argues against secular values and demonstrate a shameless yeah, desire to He's use government that. resources. He does that. Yes. Okay. Look, I'd, I'd say one okay, or okay. zero. All right. <laughs> let's let's put him down at. Uh, all this is subject to review. I mean, he might want to appeal. <laughs> You never know. They, he may well be listening. He may be one of those 200 that downloads this every week. You know what, Scott? <laughs> if, if we put him down as a one, I reckon he might well contact us and appeal, stating he should be a zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's that's the Honourable Kevin Andrews, Liberal Victoria. Okay. What, and you've got Adam... Okay. Uh, Adam Bant. Adam Bant, the Green from yep. Melbourne. And I couldn't find a hell of a lot on him. All I found was an article from news.com saying, is, this a, uh, is Australia a godless nation? And it said there that uh, the majority of... Well, we're not as bad as the United States, but it said that um, more than 80% of federal politicians who responded said they believed in God and would be attending at least one church service this weekend. Only four of the politicians, Green Senator Lee Rhiannon, New South Wales, Adam Bant, Victoria, Larissa's Waters, Queensland, and Liberal Senator Simon Birmingham outed themselves as non-believers. Okay, non-believer, yep. So, yeah, so Adam Bant is a non-believer. 
Um, that's the only information I found out about him. Um, okay. Well, on that basis, yeah. then, he would be a five, I would have thought, because neutral uh, is five, meaning there's nothing pro-secular or, or uh, anti-secular in what he's actually said or done. All we'd say is no religion and a five. That's fair yeah, okay. enough. And dear yeah. listener, if you are doing a politician and that's the result, which will often be the case, particularly some of the more obscure backbenchers who have only just entered the parliament and probably... Yeah, but what we've, just, what we've discovered with the marriage equality debate is that the obscure backbenchers are the ones that seem to yeah. yell the loudest. Well, that's true. <laughs> but, well, it's probably yeah. also, to some extent, the religious ones who you will find uh, speaking at at various ACL-sponsored events and appear in the press, you know, advocating um, non-secular ideas, whereas the ones who are mm. sort of pro-secular, just by its nature, don't seem to talk about it as much. So, um, mm. so yeah, the other one I did was Anthony Albanese, and uh, he's a Catholic, non-practising, um, and... Uh, he said his mother brought him up with three basic um, faiths, which was the Labor Party, a football team, and the Catholic Church or something. But there really wasn't anything where he'd said anything particularly pro-secular, anti-secular, so I've given him a five, so as neutral. So Okay. So there we go. That's, dear listener, the IFVG Secular Index, and we need your help and... You will have our eternal gratitude if you help out. That would be great. Yes, in fact, thank you very much. stop the podcast right now if you're listening and go and write a note to yourself that you're going to do that. So, and then come back to us. <laughs> okay, um, Scott. In the process of that, dear listener, you will end up down some rabbit holes with this um, sort of endeavour, which will be fascinating. And I came across. A 2009 Nielsen survey report which dealt with uh, attitudes to God and uh, it was a pretty good report. In many ways, uh, some of the basic information matched the, uh, the recent census at the time. So this was a 2009 survey that, you know, the figures weren't that far different from the 2006 census in terms of major religious affiliation type questions. But there was a really interesting section there, Scott, where they asked people whether they believe in, and then there's a list, miracles, heaven, life after death, angels, psychic powers, astrology, hell, the devil, UFOs and witches, and whether people believed in those things. And, dear listener, the some of it's quite frightening, uh, 63% of Australians believe in miracles. 56% believe in heaven. Uh, 41% believe in astrology. Yikes. Um, <laughs> this is good. Only 38% believe in hell. But hang on. 56 believe, 56% of people believe in heaven, but only 38% believe in hell. How's that work? Yeah, that's probably comes back to the, um, you know, those studies into the 
uh, what, do I, what do you call it? Near-death experiences where everyone always sees the light and all that sort of stuff and they've never actually, they've never actually reported a downside yeah. to it, to yeah. the afterlife. So you would have thought if you believed in a heaven, you would necessarily <clears throat> believe in a hell, but apparently not. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, and 37% believe in the devil. So that's um, so that was interesting. Some of that there, Scott. Um, patrons, time to thank them. And uh, dear patrons, thank you for your assistance. And this is a message to you from the other people who are downloading and who have not yet um, become patrons. But but this is how they feel about you. Yes, dear listener, you can join them and be the wind beneath our wings <laughs> by becoming a patron. <laughs> Patronage has slowed down. Nobody's signed up in recent times. It's a bit disappointing. So uh, thank you, Ayame, Sean, Alex, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig, Janelle, Al, Ken and John A. Good on you guys. Thank you very much. And um, uh, actually, just quickly as well, we had a voicemail, Scott, from uh, John T in WA. I'll play a bit of that. Okay. Dear Messrs. Fist and Glove, I thought you might like a voicemail from a supporter who's at home sick today and being weakened and vulnerable by said illness. Thought you'd tune into Hillsong's Chapel, the College Experience TV show. I thought I'd take one for the team and listen to what bollocks of Twisted Logic could be heard, and I wasn't kept waiting long. The subject of the day was freedom, what is it? The pastor went on to explain that true freedom is an upside-down freedom, which would at first appear to be counterintuitive to popular notions of freedom, namely that we become free when we become ourselves. He then said, we actually become free when we become like someone else. And guess who? Paul says we should become like Jesus. Jesus is the picture of our true selves, not our broken, sinful, worthless selves, our in-bondage, unredeemed, selfish sin-constrained selves. Well, having been religious in the past, I can well understand how such rubbish can be taken in as if it was true or sensible. But the truth behind this seemingly innocuous message is you are worthless, selfish, sinful and broken. You can never be free unless you believe in the values of a supernatural being that doesn't exist and aspire to the values of a character invented by man to control the masses of people. I then switched over to watch an episode of The Handmaid's Tale on SBS and Demand and the true outcome of religious belief was restored to me. Keep up the good work, boys. Thanks a lot. <laughs> good on you, John. Um, have you watched that program, The Hand Handmaiden's Tale or Handmaid's Tale? I haven't watched it, no, but I keep hearing about it, so I'm just going to have to go on SBS on yeah, Demand and watch it. some sort of yeah. dystopian world where the religious right have taken over control of the USA and and women are kept as some sort of breeding slaves and um, yeah it, it, um, it sounds like our sort of program <laughs> but, but um, yeah so anyway we'll have to watch that um, and yes you know good point John well sorry to hear you're sick sorry that being so sick you actually subjected yourself to that um, 
<laughs> yeah, watching the hill song, bloody yeah, hell, he must be crook. Yeah, that's enough to get you up and <laughs> yeah. going and back to work again. Um, Scott, on other issues, um, we've had the Barnaby Joyce fiasco now with... Um, yeah, this is really bad, isn't it? I mean, like, um, when the Greens got done and that sort of stuff, you just wrote it off and thought, uh, it's a minor political party, that sort of thing. You know, they've just got lax processes. But to take down the Deputy Prime Minister of the country, that is bloody disgraceful. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to him and that sort of stuff, but... <sighs> He should have checked his nationality out. He really should have checked it out. And you know, it, it, if the Labor Senate, if the if the office if the office holder in a Labor senator, Senator Penny Wong, if he could make one phone call to New Zealand and have it asked, then that shouldn't have been too difficult for Barnaby Joyce to check out his citizenship. Mm. So, so what happened there, dear listener, was somehow a staffer in Penny Wong's office got wind that Barnaby Joyce's father was a Kiwi and then contacted the New Zealand opposition, uh, Labor... Yeah, the New Zealand Labor opposition, opposition, ..and got information that, in fact, uh, which then got the government in New Zealand to issue a statement to say that Barnaby Joyce, you know, current, according to their law, is a citizen. So just stating a fact of... Of, of how their law applies, and um, uh, so you know, good on the star. I mean, that's just part of politics, isn't it? Nothing wrong with that, and mm. nothing wrong with New Zealand just simply stating, as a matter of fact, uh, our records show that Barnaby's dad was a Kiwi, and according to our law, that makes Barnaby a citizen. Full stop. Mm. Well, Julie Bishop. Deputy, well, she's not the deputy BM, she's a deputy liberal, so deputy leader of the liberal foreign party, minister. Yeah. Um, she came out saying, basically likening New Zealand's actions to that of Russia in the US election in terms of interfering with the sovereignty of another government. <laughs> I kid you not, dear listener, that was the the implication and tone of her statement. She's one of the better performers in this in this Liberal government. Like she's just one of the better ones. And she had to come out it's so disingenuous. Uh, what she said mm-hmm. was um, quote, New Zealand is facing an election. Should there be a change of government, I would find it very hard to build trust with those involved in allegations designed to undermine the government of Australia. So, as the writer of this article says, in short, if the current New Zealand Labor opposition won government in a few weeks, um, well, Wellington may as well just go and call itself Pyongyang, as far as (laughs) Julie Bishop's concerned. (laughs) She says here, uh, uh, it's a principle of international law that nations do not interfere in the domestic political processes of other countries. What a just a complete overreaction. It's an appalling joke, isn't it? Because it's... uh... All they've done is declare the citizenship of somebody. They're entitled to do that. The fact that it stuffs up another country's 
tenuous House of Representatives balance, well, that's not their fault. The fact that our Constitution's got a pretty, you know, difficult law on the books, that's not their fault. It's just the way it is. Mm. Um, Anyway, I thought this was a great response by Tony Burke in Parliament. Have a listen to this, Scott. The Manager of Opposition Business. My question is to the Foreign Minister. I refer to the Foreign Minister's extraordinary press conference today where the Minister announced that Australia's relationship with New Zealand would be determined by the partisan politics of New Zealand's next election. If the Foreign Minister won't be able to work with the New Zealanders, how will the Foreign Minister work with the Deputy Prime Minister? (laughs) (laughs) There's not enough humour in our Parliament. Well done. No, there's not. And uh, I think that was very funny on the, on the behalf of um, Tony Burke. So well done, mm. Tony Burke. Christopher Pine, not to be outdone, um, Julie Bishop's colleague, he said, the leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, has shown he is quite happy to plumb new, be- new depths to collude with other political parties, this one in New Zealand, to undermine the Australian government. He frothed. <laughs> He goes on, in all seriousness, he goes on, quote... Christopher Pine goes yeah, on. He goes on yeah. and says, how many other foreign governments or foreign political parties in other countries has the Labor Party been colluding with to try to undermine the Australian government? He demanded to know. <laughs> has he been talking to the people in Indonesia or China or the Labor Party in the UK? For goodness sake. This is the calibre of politician we've got going here. Uh, Julie Bishop, I, you know, it's... I gave her an 8 <clears throat> on, the, on the IFVG Secular Index, Scott. Uh, um, just on the... Uh, just on this section 44 of the Constitution, dear listener, this is, you know, this is another water cooler one for you particularly if your water cooler is perhaps in a law office, in a big inner-city law firm, and you're really into the Constitution, this might help you. (laughs) Section 44, this is talking about people who are disqualified from being chosen as a, a senator or a member of the House of Reps. It says there are actually three reasons why you would be disqualified. One is... um, and I'll re-order this to make it just easier, but one is that um, you're a subject or a citizen of a foreign power. So that's what we've been dealing with with these people who are citizens um, of other countries. The other one would be if you are under any acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience or adherence to a foreign power. So you don't even have to be a citizen if you're just under some acknowledgement of allegiance obedience or adherence. And thirdly, uh, as an alternative, if you're entitled to the rights or privileges of a subject or a citizen of a foreign power. So even if you're not a citizen, but if you're entitled to the rights and privileges of a citizen, then you're disqualified. It's a very, very broad section, Scott. Like Barnaby's in trouble on this one. It is very broad. I was just trying to I was just trying to think of how you how you'd be 
entitled to things that citizens get if you're not a citizen. Who knows? It's possible under some foreign power law. They might say that, you know, as the son or daughter of a... uh, of a... Oh, let's pick a country of um, of, of of a Canadian citizen. You are not Canadian, but in every other respect, you are entitled to all the rights and privileges of a Canadian citizen. You just don't have a Canadian passport. Like, I mean, it's possible. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, so it's quite a broad section, Scott. Here's one to consider, dear listener. Acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience or adherence to a foreign power. Scott, we've already noted that the Vatican is a country with its ambassadors and a seat at the the United Nations. And under the Lateran Treaty, under the Lateran Treaty is acknowledged as its own separate sovereign entity. Could somebody, Scott, a professed Catholic, be under an acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience or adherence to a foreign power merely by being Catholic? Well, potentially, but... I don't think it would be that in a reality, though, because the reality is most people just turn up to church, they they nod and they say and they say their prayers and that sort of stuff, mm. and then move on. Would you believe, dear listener, there's actually been a case on this? The beauty of the internet, Scott, it's so easy. Like in my days as a law student, these things were hard to find. But sitting at home, having a cup of tea, and you just again following one of these rabbit holes from uh, filling in the. Um, IFVG Secular Index. Dear listener, these are some of the advantages of doing it. You find out fascinating things. <laughs> there was a case of uh, Crittenden and Anderson where uh, this is back in... Let me just find it here. Sound effects of pages flipping over. 1949. And um, mm-hmm. the respondent, Gordon Anderson, was returned as elected the petitioner was a candidate at the election and he's uh, applied to the High Court saying, hey, this guy just got re-elected, he's a Catholic, he holds an allegiance to the papal state and as such under Section 41 should be disqualified from being a politician. And, um, And in the end, the judge actually said, well... I'm really not going to answer that question. I'm just simply going to say that under Section 116, um, which says there shall be no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office under the Commonwealth, I'm going to use Section 116 to say that uh, it's okay. He can be a Member of Parliament. And didn't really explore Section 44 that much. So there you go. Hmm. it was just a brief, shining glimmer of hope there for a moment, but it's evaporated. <laughs> you're going to have Catholic, you're going to have Tony Abbott kicked out of Parliament, yeah, under you? Section 44. <laughs> yeah. Scott, uh, uh, there's a lot of sabre rattling going on with uh, Donald Trump and everyone on the planet besides Donald Trump, but in particular uh, the leadership of North Korea and. Uh, 
our Prime Minister Turnbull, um, in response to the sabre rattling and the potential nuclear strike on US territory of Guam, said that Australia and the US are joined at the hip on matters of international security basically saying that if there is a nuclear war between North Korea and the USA, we're in. For sure. Don't even think about it. We're just there. We're in. What do you think of that, Scott? Well, I mean... You don't want to get involved in a nuclear war. Uh, An exchange like that is nobody wins. You know, it's... It's maddening that it's got to this. Um, I can't work out what planet Kim Jong-un is from, but he he keeps pushing the Americans like he's got some massive military there. Now, yes, he's got the fourth largest army in the world. Who's it? Who's the fourth largest? If it comes to fisticuffs with the Americans, it'll be over with fairly quickly. North Korean army in numbers, the fourth largest, isn't it? Yes, it is. Didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to be living in Seoul either because it's only 40 kilometres from the demilitarised zone and that sort of stuff and there's tens of thousands of artillery pieces just north of that and that sort of thing that's got Seoul's in range and all that sort of stuff. So it would be over with fairly quickly if you're a resident of Seoul. And that's even not that's not even that's not even accounting for a nuclear uh, attack or anything like that. It is um it would be fairly devastating from a conventional weapons point of view. Um, but having said that, though, once the Yanks got the once the Yanks got their, you know, once the, once the Yanks got the wind behind them and that sort of stuff, they'd be over the they'd be over the DMZ and they'd be up to the Yalu River but fairly the, quickly. The, the problem for South Korea <laughs> is the Trump Tower is, is out of range, so Donald. Donald yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, what? Well, but you know, it, it's really. You know, he, he keeps talking about fire and fury and all that sort of stuff, but he's not actually making any direct threats. You know, he said that the military is locked and loaded, but what the hell does that mean? You know, it's um, Scott. He, anyway, it's it's a poor, it's yeah. an appalling statement by Malcolm Turnbull because we've yeah, everybody is, yeah. in the Western world and and forget it, everyone in the world for the last six months, has been saying what an appalling character Donald Trump is. And here he is, mm. sabre-rattling and poking the nest and and causing uh, trouble where it's not necessary. And if he, uh, if he, through that action, prompts North Korea to fire off missiles, well, it's his own bloody fault for doing it. And the thought that we're automatically Mm. in, joined at the hip with the USA, when they've got a nutcase like Trump in charge, carrying on the way that we know he carries on, is just irresponsible of Turnbull. And if he had to say anything, he should be saying, well, if something happens, we will examine the circumstances leading up to it and make our decisions from there. Thank you very much. Which is exactly what the ANZUS Treaty demands that each each side does, is each side of the treaty looks at the situation and decides then whether or not... It, it doesn't guarantee the Marines are coming. Correct. So he's, he's well, basically... Well, it does guarantee that they'll, yes. they'll look at it. Um, he was 
kind of asserting under the ANZUS Treaty that we're in and we're going to be acting if something happens to America. But that's not what the ANZUS Treaty says, dear listener. So Mm. um, Julie Bishop has also been quoted as saying at the heart of the treaty is a commitment to come to one another's aid in the worst of times. And dear listener, um, contrary to that, um, Defence Minister David Johnston um, was asked by Tony Jones. So, just to complete that answer, does the ANZUS Alliance commit Australia or not if the United States is in conflict in our region? And David Johnston said, I don't believe it does. And the reason is, dear listener, that um, under the treaty... Uh, it says, Article 3, the parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence or security of any of the parties is threatened in the Pacific. The key words there, dear listener, being the parties will consult together. Um, So we're not committed to act, and Turnbull's statement that we're joined at the hip was going a bit too far, indicating that we are. Um, that, dear listener, as you're standing around the water cooler, compare and contrast with the NATO Treaty, which requires both consultation and assistance, because the NATO Treaty Article 5 says, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all, and consequently they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defence, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forth with blah, blah, blah. So... It's interesting, Scott. Were you aware of the difference between the ANZAC Treaty, ANZUS Treaty, and the NATO Treaty? I did know that the ANZUS Treaty was a lot weaker than the NATO Treaty, but I wasn't aware of what article and that sort of stuff was the mm. NATO Treaty. Um, so yeah. ANZUS uh, stops short of the NATO-style commitment to military action. That's good to know. Mm. That's one thing in our favour. <laughs> uh, just looking in the chat... I did like with... John Minidus, um where he's written down here, the answer more likely lies in his domestic political travails, in particular the threat to the coalition provide, proposed by the marriage equality dispute. You know, that was probably where Turnbull was headed with that. Scott, yeah. we're heading out of time, but we've, we've got to get through this. We can't keep building on last week's leftovers. We've just we've got to at least get through this week's. <laughs> Sorry, dear listener. Yeah, hey, it's a podcast. Just pause it and come back to it. If we, you know, wait, hey, just stop if it's too much. Like if you're not up for the endurance test, <laughs> that is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove episode 109. Then you can give in. But hey, in the chat room, opinionated organism, um, <laughs> he's got here. This is in response to our uh, little thing about the uh, the patrons. He's gone. As a poor bastard, I can confirm, patrons are the wind beneath our wings. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, uh, opinionated organism. Um, Scott, Charlottesville, what are your impressions of what's going on over there? Oh, bloody hell. You know, it's 
<clears throat> if anyone needed any any evidence that Trump is a fool, then his initial press conference where he said that he started out saying everything okay and that sort of stuff, but then he said from both sides, from both sides. He repeated it twice. You know, that was maddening in the in, in, in the extreme that he would actually bother to say something like that. And it was really mm. mind-numbingly stupid of him to say that. Anyway, that's the, that's the main thing I'd have to say about Donald Trump. Charlottesville and that sort of stuff, I find it ridiculous that they actually went out to protest because there was a statue of General E. Lee was being pulled mm, down, yep. wasn't it? Robert E. Lee statue yeah. being pulled down, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. I wouldn't bother protesting about it. However, people do protest and that sort of stuff. So that's it. You know, it's, um, it's madness. Scott, anyway. I think uh, just... Yeah, but to, to drive a car yeah. in... Sorry to cut you off, but to drive a car into a crowd of people that you don't agree with... That is bloody mm. ridiculous. Yeah. It's a bit of a tricky one, you know, statues as to old war heroes. Um, uh, you know, if you were to remove the statue of every unsavoury character in history, it wouldn't be many left standing at times, would there? Mm. But That's true. you don't mm. want to sort of just erase history, um, but you don't want to be seen to be glorifying some bad characters either um i've sort of taken the view that you know with a statue like that maybe you would remove it from pride of place in a center square in a town and perhaps put it somewhere of lesser significance or what they did in the soviet union was that they created instances of special parks where they would put some of these statues of Lenin and people like that in these parks so they weren't destroyed but they were there as something for people to look at and view and to sort of um well, I was going to say appreciate but you know it, it, not to have it erased as such but um still there so that might be one sort of compromise because Let's face it, let's say we had a statue of Rolf Harris outside the front of the Sydney Opera House. We really wouldn't want that statue to stay there forever, would we? Like, we'd just say... No, we wouldn't. You know, it would be okay for that statue to go somewhere else in the city of Sydney in some other gallery of rogues, park of, you know, characters, perhaps. That's where some Mm. of these things perhaps should end up, so... So anyway, that's on the score of um, complaining about, you know, protesting the removal of a of a um, Confederate hero. Scott, people need to look at the videos of these protesters. They've got the they've got the fire torches in their hands, and this is Ku Klux Klan without the hats. It's mm, a nasty, it it's, nasty. It really is really nasty, nasty uh, people, yeah. And the chanting that is going on is extremely white supremacist, um, sort of racist chanting. And, but yeah, the nighttime, the torches, it is something out of what we've seen in the movies with Ku Klux Klan gatherings, just without the hats. It's an ugly, ugly mm. look. And, 
a um, couple of articles I've linked to linked to here. One of them makes the point: um, many college-educated people who have left the political mainstream in favour of extremist ideologies over the past few years, <coughs> a large number have adopted a very clean-cut, frat boyish look designed to appeal to the average white guy in a way that the Ku Klux Klan robes or skinhead regalia never could. And that is true. A lot of... It's an interesting combination with these guys. There's a lot of clean-cut frat boy-looking characters there. There was also a lot of sort of motorcycle Nazi-looking guys as well. Um, mm. So you see, many belong to organisations like Vanguard America, Identity Europa, the Traditionalist Workers' Party and True Cascadia. Most of these groups view themselves as part of a broader alt-right movement. Uh, they're very well organised in their demonstration. Um, uh, and one of the guys here, I'll quote, who was interviewed, said... Um, I was a libertarian, said Mosley, as white supremacists chanted, whose streets, our streets, in the background. I looked around and noticed that most libertarians were white men. I decided that the left was winning with identity politics, so I wanted to play identity politics too. I'm fascinated by leftist tactics. I read Saul Alinsky, Martin Luther King, this is our 60s movement. So he's referring to an identity issue. And I'm going to come to that in one moment. Scott, I forgot to mention, lots of people talk about this as being fascism. But um, fascism is a political philosophy, movement or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralised autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader severe economic and social regimentation and forcible suppression of opposition. I think these guys were into the uh, racially motivated aspect of fascism, but not all of it. So I don't know that fascism sits well with a lot of these guys. It's more of a racism thing, it appears to me. But um, finally, dear listener, last article, which we'll talk about and which follows on from this identity issue in terms of these white supremacists. This is from a guy called Mark Lilla uh, in the New York Times. Um, and he's basically making the point, as we've described, Scott, that the left has abandoned its traditional role of supporting the worker and the poor generally and has got totally obsessed with identity politics and of helping ethnic groups yes. rather than the poor, the downtrodden and the disadvantaged generally. And what that has meant is that the poor and downtrodden and economically disadvantaged who don't fit into an ethnic group that the left is currently supporting have been left behind. And they're now mm. saying, mm. and this is these white guys in the Rust Belt who are then saying, well, identity politics, 
we'll, we're an identity. White guys left behind. That's our identity. If, yeah. if identity politics is an acceptable practice, then um, we're going to start practicing identity politics as the left behind white guys who the left is not willing to assist. Um, so, uh, really good article, this one. <clears throat> Have a read of this because it talks about when Hillary Clinton was campaigning, you know, she would talk about uh, African-Americans, Latinos, LGBT, women voters, but she never mentioned, um, uh, you know, groups like the left-behind white guys. Um, so... It says how this identity politics has taken over, as we've mentioned before. And um, let me just read this bit here. It's calling it a... Instead of a white backlash, it's calling it a white lash. So the white lash thesis is convenient. Um, actually, I won't read that bit. Um, these guys are reacting against the omnipresent rhetoric of identities. Liberals should bear in mind that the first identity movement in American politics was the Ku Klux Klan, which still exists. Uh, those who play the identity game should be prepared to lose it. And in the article, or I think in this article, it says that a lot of uh, a lot of Latinos, Scott, actually identify as white people. They don't identify as Latinos. So, mm. based on that. White people are still the majority in America and will continue to be at least until 2050 and may always be the majority if you take that into account, that a significant amount of the Latino yeah. population consider themselves as white. So if you want to play mm. identity politics and it's politics is a numbers game, you'll actually lose because there'll be more white guys claiming identity politics. And that's kind of what happened in the Trump election. So... Yeah. So to some extent, it's it's uh, identity politics by the left has left a significant section disenfranchised and here they go erupting in a place like Charlottesville in the most ugly way, Scott. It's just frightening. So yeah. this is the thing, identity politics it really is so was divisive. You know, if the left had said... Let's support poor people, unemployed, disadvantaged, people who can't afford to pay their mortgages, their health care bills. Then you pick up all of the people. But, and, you know, the struggling white guy is part of your group. But if you're only saying, oh, we're going to help the struggling, uh, you know, queers, gays, black females, guy, Muslim Muslims, yeah. you know, brown people, blah, 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 then you've just you've left behind a big group. So that's kind of thesis of that one. So yeah, there we go, Scott. Anything else from the chat room? No opinionated organism. Uh, he's finished. So or she, um, Scott. We'll wind it up there. Good on you, dear listener, for hanging in on the marathon episode. <laughs> and I know that your first move is either to go onto Patreon and just you know sign up there and join us, or you're going to go and send a voicemail. Because uh, we love those, you're possibly going to go on Facebook and share some of our stuff. 
and then uh, you're going to get yourself a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, sit aside half an hour, pick a few names from the list and do a quick Google on some of these characters and and provide us your thoughts on where they should sit on the index. And you will get a valuable mention down the track as we work our way through the index. Scott, until next time. <laughs> Good. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in, people. We really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Cheers. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.